Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Well, hello, good evening, wherever you are in the world listening. This is Horror Vanguard live on Repeater Radio, part of an insane three days of hauntological and gothic broadcasting. My name is John, otherwise known as the Licorice Guy, one of your co-ghosts for the next hour. I am joined, as always, by my friend and uh, co-ghost of the show, Ash Ash, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing doing pretty good. Uh, today I'll be referred to as son of podcaster, uh, audio editing on bone. <laughs> uh, we are so excited to be uh, partnering up with the incredible Repeater Radio. If you are watching, uh, if you are still watching the film, uh, please do listen to us in the video and chat section of Repeater Radio. Uh, if you are just joining us on the audio channel, please do uh, say hello in the chat as well. Uh, and welcome to the Horror Vanguard, the spookiest film criticism podcast on the left. I'm the most leftist horror movie review show you've ever <laughs> listened to. Uh, we talk about three things on the show. We talk about uh, how friendship is great. We talk about scary movies and we talk about radical politics and theory. Um, now, today's show, today's episode, we are dealing with Perhaps, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of films on the Horror Vanguard, but this is maybe the most mainstream, the most obvious, <laughs> <laughs> the most the most kind of like transparent uh, text. We are talking about Edward, Edward Elias Mahige's Begotten from 1990. Uh, Ash, wh- when did you first see Begotten? So I, I think I, I have never, I have yet to meet someone who has seen like an official screening or the official VHS copy of Begotten. Everyone I know who's seen this movie has seen bootleg copies or watched it on like a pirate stream online. And I think that that's where I first saw it. I first saw this, you know, uploaded to the internet in some random site, just watching whatever spooky movies I could find. And I think that adds to the, the, the mystique behind Begotten, right? The fact that like, this movie is not difficult to come by, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you're not going to be able to get it at like blockbuster is a reference that would have made sense uh, around when this movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I think I first saw bits of this film, um, particularly the opening sequence in like, you know, one of those kind of like disturbing viral video or like 10 scariest oh, yeah, moments yep. in horror that kind of floated around. Uh, the internet like five or six years ago uh and then this week both of us have been basically free basing begotten uh, <laughs> i've so, watched it three times in the last two days uh, i've done the same thing and and wow i feel like i feel i don't know about you but i feel like my mind has kind of unlocked to talk about begotten it's my it's my favorite hour-long ambient lo-fi to study to playlist <laughs> oh yeah 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 same you just put you just put on begotten and you can get all of your homework done. <laughs> the vi- the vibes are great here. Th- th- thank you, Elias Mirage. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. Great vibes all around. Um, now, if you are new to the Horror Vanguard, oh, and if you are a returning listener, you um, you will know this. But if you're new, um, one of the things we do in every show is that Ash at the top of the show 
always kind of lays out in very in very kind of straightforward terms, very kind of easy to to get behind terms, just what the film that we're talking about is 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 really all about, what it's trying to say. So, uh, Ash, for 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 me, for for all of the HV listeners, for everyone else listening to Repeater Radio, um, can you please just just explain to us all, Forgotten, what's it all about? Begotten is an act of communion. We proceed down past the cinematic pews so that our eyes might devour the body and blood of the son of the earth, flesh on bone. Begotten is a reminder that the act of seeing with one's own eyes merges the flesh of the watcher and the material object of the watched. John Berger wrote in his Act of Seeing, Sometimes the whole mythological scene functions like a garment held out to the spectator owner to put his arms into and wear. The fact of the scene is substantial, and yet, behind its substantiality, empty facilitates the wearing of it. This applies to Begotten, but, unlike a painting, Begotten can never be owned. Begotten lives as a contemporary cult object in countless bootleg VHS copies and pirate streaming uploads. We then become a spectator collective, our arms intertwined as we let the sights and sounds of Begotten pass into our being. Begotten facilitates this same wearing of the text, but because the film can never be truly owned, that empty substantiality is replaced with a raw and profound meaning. Begotten is often viewed as a cinematic dirge connected to mythology and nihilism. So then it is only natural to turn to Camus who wrote, if Faust and Don Quixote are eminent creations of art, this is because of their immeasurable abilities to point to us with their earthly hands. Son of Earth, Mother Earth, and God killing himself reach their earthly hands through time and into our hearts. Horror wants to do things to your body, and this film sacrifices its flesh right off the bone to do something to us. The strongest bonds are those forged as we pass through a mutually shared agony. As Alain Badiou wrote, to love is to struggle beyond solitude. With everything in the world that can animate existence, I love you becomes, in this world there is the font you are for my life. In the water from this font, I see our bliss, yours first. Love is structured on sacrifice, but Begotten understands this. There is a path out of alienation, though the walking of it will change us in ways we cannot yet see, but walk it we must that one day we might walk hand in hand through the ambient calm of the forest. Join us as we discuss E. Elias Mirage's Begotten. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, Any time you decide to quote John Berger and Alain Badieu uh, in, the, <laughs> in the same piece of writing, you know I am going to be here for it. Um, let us begin then. Let us begin with this kind of transformative journey, this this uh, mythological vision quest of cinema. Um, let us begin as we as we always do on Horror Vanguard by entering the formalism zone. Do 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 do. <laughs> I guess we're we're live, and I don't have the technology to do like audio drops, so I'm just faking it till I make it today. But, which is, uh, but it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, so, so let's talk about the filming and production of this movie really quick, because I think the, the creation of Begotten is, is just about as interesting as the text of the film itself. Yeah. 
Uh, so, so one of the things right off the bat that's just supremely interesting about this movie is just how, as a physical object, it was constructed. Um, and I'm talking specifically about um, nobody really knows for certain how long uh, post-production took on this film. Um, Elias Mirage has said uh, in some interviews that it took five months. He said in other interviews that it took 720 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say it took three years to make this movie. There's a lot of back and forth on its creation. But no matter which way you look at it, kind of taking... 16 millimeter reel and converting it into this grainy you know like black and white high contrast almost like filmic calamity that we view is is so interesting this reminds me of like peter tchaikovsky's outer space in that respect yeah it like it seems to pulse on the screen right you know there's this there's this uh instability to the image and I, i i also read that um he kind of built his own optical processor to help him in post-production. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think all of this, all of this mythology kind of ties into the, into something that you said right at the top of the show, which is that there is no originary point for begotten, right? There is no yeah. single pure text. I mean, I mean, we can say obviously, of course there is, there's, there's the, there's the pre-production reels somewhere in, in, in a in a cellar or somewhere in a in a, uh, <laughs> on, a on, on a shelf but like uh this this film exists especially now as this kind of digital occulted object that proliferates and kind of and all of that kind of reinforces the the mythology of the text itself right oh oh yeah like so a little a little uh hv behind the scenes magic like i love maybe even more so than watching movies themselves watching uh, behind the scenes stuff, interviews with actors and other filmmakers and stuff like that. Begotten is one of the movies where like, I never want to see the dailies from this. Like I never want to see the pieces that it took to make this whole. Cause when you were, when you were talking about this movie as pulsating, right? Like, like the text of Begotten is so richly alive and the characters in Begotten are, are, are suffering beyond measure and they share that suffering with us, right? You come to Begotten to hurt with the text of the film. And like at one point in post-production, uh, Mirage was, I'm probably saying Elias's last name wrong. <laughs> so forgive me for that one, everyone listening. But at one point in post-production, he was literally taking sandpaper and, and grinding it into the film to destroy it and to mm-hmm. get this kind of effect that we have. Uh, so so we, we have this pained object of art um, I think that's a great way of putting it. This idea of like pain is endued into it. Um, well, given that we're talking about pain, Ash, should we talk about perhaps your? your, <laughs> your should we talk about your own? This is the other thing about our show. We're excellent at segues. Should we talk about your own pain, which is the death, the the kind of the the victory of the talkie? Because this is this is a silent film. This is a film with very minimal score, kind of buzzing, ambient uh, soundtrack. What do you think about this as a, as a piece of silent cinema? So, uh, just just to put my cards on the table here, the talkie destroyed the craft of acting. Uh, you don't you don't have to. Uh, I am, I'm forgetting who I'm paraphrasing right now, but there's this amazing quote from when talkies were, were first becoming cool. And, and some actor said something to the effect of like, oh, you don't even have to act anymore. Now you can just tell people how you feel. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. 
and I'm, I'm being I'm being a little silly here, but I, I think what's important here is that there's a teleology to capitalism, right? With each new invention that becomes the new pinnacle that everything is hyper focused on, and often for like no particular reason. Uh, the best example of this has been the resurgence of 3D cinema. And now you have the the new style of 3D where, you know, like you, you don't have the amazing 3D Friday the 13th scene where there's like a pitchfork being stabbed at you. It, it's not it's not like shocking in that way. Now it's like immersive. So there's like some depth to the trees and the big vista shots or whatever. Um, and I think talkies largely fit into that paradigm, right? Like uh, silent cinema has been relegated to the halls of art house. Um, you know, like to, if, if someone tried to pitch a popular silent movie, uh, they would be chased out of town. And I think we lose so much when we when we say that silent cinema, black and white film, all of these like older techniques of the genre. A movie, one of my favorite uh, cinematic experiences I have ever had, like this fundamentally changed me, was I saw um, the Alloy Orchestra do a live score of Metropolis. Mm-hmm. And it was just like I was just sitting there stunned, and I was like, "Could you imagine someone doing this with like Star Wars?" Yeah, this. I, the other thing that comes up here is that like innovations in production, the technical aspects of filmmaking, are about the maximization of profit. Right. A really good example of what you're talking about here is the artist. Like, if there is anything Hollywood loves more, it's like making films that mythologize and romanticize their own past. Um, and so suddenly the talkie, the, the silent movie becomes this this gilded age, this kind of nostalgic throwback, this this product of, of an invented history that can be capitalized and sold in the present. And like, Begotten doesn't feel like it comes from, you know, the golden era of silent film. It feels like it comes from something earlier. It feels like it, it feels like this is not a film that was made. This was a film that was unearthed. And that's this is something that's really important to to talk about too, and I think this will this will lead us into our begotten discourse zone. Um, but that was intentional, mm-hmm. right? E- Elias Marriage Mirage Marige, um wanted to create a film that looked like it predated cinema, stylistically based on what it was depicting, how the film itself looked. Um, he he referred to it. He referred to Begotten as a Dead Sea Scroll for cinema, right? Like this is this is a movie you would find in a cave, uh, doing some exploration, and I, I think it succeeds. Um, I've talked about on the show before that the, the history of cinema is roughly as old as human prehistory, right? Like there's there's really interesting research that's been done on some types of cave paintings where when you look at the cave paintings and the etchings on the walls with like a, uh, a dimly lit moss lantern, like what, what uh, humanity would have had access to at the time, right? Literally just a rock with some moss on it and the moss is on fire. Uh, the, the cave paintings look like they're moving. You know, they look like they're, they're shifting about, right? Like it's this animation. And Mirage is connecting himself uh, uh, perhaps unintentionally in this specific example, but he's connecting himself to this really long tradition of of humans doing shadow play and finding ways to make images move. Yeah, this is this is a phantasmagoria, right? This oh, absolutely. Is, this is a mythic phantasmagoria. Um, does do you want to? Should we begin our begotten discourse then? <laughs> yes, let's uh, let's get begotten. 
All right. Well, let's let let's start with a very kind of foundational question, and this is maybe the question that people that come to this film for the first time will want to know or will want to be able to answer. What kind of film are we dealing with here? What, as as an object, as text, what is this? So a lot of people compare Begotten to to David Lynch, um, and even though Mirage uh, doesn't claim a Lynchian heritage for this film. Like he cites Bricage's, um The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes and a couple other films like that and the movies that inspired him to make this. Um, but I'm, I'm moved to recall one of David Lynch's interviews where someone asked him to explain an aspect of his movie and he was just like, no. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because that's that's the vibe here. You know, like what kind of movie is begotten? No. No, no, <laughs> no wrong question. Um, I, I, I... I understand the reference to Lynch, and I understand the the reference to people like uh, Georges Franju, who we'll get onto in a minute. But honestly, I think the way to understand this, if you've never seen it before, is to stop thinking in terms of like genealogical or hereditary links to other bits of cinema. This is this is um, this is an, a a depiction of a relationship to history, right? To to mythology, to to um, to to kind of defiantly metaphysical sense of time, uh, the 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 concept that kept popping into my head watching this is is that of deep time, the geological conception of of mm-hmm. the the evolutionary accretion of images, you know, layers of rock that build up over over billions upon billions of years. Like, what kind of thing is this? This is this is a depiction of history. This is this is geological you know uh layers being built up images that are layered on top of like literally in the in the post-production and editing this is images layered on top of each other and literally scoured with sandpaper like so so like we we have a we have a kind of habit of going well this is a film therefore it fits within the network of films which relate to themselves right It, it looks inward that kind of oh what kind of film is this we're all already looking inward but really, we should be looking outward, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think the title card, uh, as cryptic as it is, just outlines this, right? Language bearers, photographers, diary makers, you with your memory are dead, frozen, lost in a present that never stops passing. Here lies the incarnation of matter, a language forever. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I- that's that's the kind of movie. that is the That title card is the most succinct possible description of the genre of this film. I've I've quoted Tarkovsky before on Horror Vanguard talking about how the great uh, innovation of cinema is its ability to manipulate time, right? To, 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 to call action and then to call cut. You know, you've taken a segment out of time. And this is this is like this is deep time. This is this is something that is <laughs> is trying to get away from the kind of preserving effects, the reification of the image, and back into a kind of like uh, much more, much more, like almost subconscious level of thinking about our relationship to, as we'll go on to talk about our relationship to ship to, you know, God, theology, nature, one another. Oh, absolutely! The, this movie's perception of time is is so incredibly interesting right the 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 fading with god's coffin as the coffin appears to just walk across the landscape like i i I just love how this movie kind of disentangles itself from like 
linear time, right? There's like a speculative realistic aspect to this, right? Like the flow of time in Begotten is almost unimportant to the text of Begotten. Uh, the Begotten has a trailer, fun fact. Uh, <laughs> if, if you didn't know, there's a trailer for Begotten. <laughs> Why? <laughs> that was my reaction when I watched the trailer for Begotten. I was like, who's who's screening this trailer before their other like, are you, are you going to sit down to like, a Superman movie and then like the begotten trailer pops up. Yeah. Beforehand. You, go, you go and see Marvel's the Et- Eternals. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the trailer is just begotten. Trailer. Well, I mean like, so uh hot take here, but Eternals is literally the Disneyfication uh, D make of begotten. Yes. No, completely. I completely agree in, in every uh, single but, way. <laughs> so, so in this trailer, one of, one of like the, um, as, as trailers are wont to do, right? It's kind of like pulling up scenes from the movie and quotes from from critics, right? And somebody refers to Begotten as a Rorschach test of a film. And, and I think what you're speaking to, this deep time, really applies to that. You know, you, you can read Christian mythology really readily into Begotten, but you can also do the same for like a Celtic pagan mythology. Mm-hmm. You can view this as being more of an agnostic or atheistic way of doing a creation myth there's a lot that begotten is in is is very much in conversation with you the viewer you know when you look into begotten you're really looking into yourself through the mirror that begotten becomes uh yes which is why which is why if we are um going to look for an antecedent if we are going to look for a genealogy Yes, we could. We can go to other cinematic reference points, um, but I think it's very interesting that uh, Elias Mahaj has kind of disavowed those. But there is one mm-hmm. that I actually do think we should talk about, um, which is um, Antonin Artaud's Theatre of Cruelty. So yeah. So so what did you want to say on that? Well, uh, the Theatre of Cruelty is this kind of almost a manifesto of artistic production, which is this notion that um, theatre at the time has become... Theatre, and perhaps even film now, has become too invested in the suffering of the individual, the suffering of the modern individual. And what's missing is a kind of direct confrontation with almost the subconscious elements of human experience, right? The kind of agony and pain uh, of life. This is why he calls it the theatre of cruelty, right? Because it's about heightening the kind of psychic antagonisms of human existence, not, not just, not in a, in a, in a kind of uh, contemporary sense, but on a, on a deep ontological level, what does it mean to be confronted with the very kind of barest truths about human nature? Um, and there are a couple of things of, of Artaud's Theatre of Cruelty that are worth flagging up here. But firstly, and I think most importantly, is the insufficiency of language. Like, uh, language, language cannot, you know, when you try and get really get down to, this is something that like someone, something like Samuel Beckett would talk about as well. When you really get down to the kind of tragic nature of existence, the, all of these characters in this film suffer, but all of that suffering is literally unspeakable, right? It's, it's a suffering and an, and a pain that eludes language. Language is, is existentially and ontologically insufficient um elaine scary in in their amazing book the body in pain talks about this that you know if you pain is almost unshareable because to be in pain is to be 
reminded incredibly forcefully that no matter how eloquent you might be, you are, you are trapped within yourself. You know, that consciousness is, is not just, consciousness can be a prison, right? And it's a prison that language cannot let you get out of. What, what, what do you think? I mean, not, not, not to abuse our catchphrase on the show, but you're absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this way of looking at begotten, and I think it's so important because begotten largely issues language on a lot of levels. You know, it's, it, it ditches language in the terms of, in the obvious sense, right? In like, you know, character dialogue. You know, at, at, at no point does Son of Earth turn and face the camera and wink and go, well, that just happened. <laughs> wow, that was sure. That was, oh, the, like the masked figures, they're right behind me, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, about as far from the Whedon-esque as one can get. Thank God. Um, but it, it also ditches a lot of cinematic language, right? Like the, this movie... It's it's obviously using cinematic language because you can't escape that, right? You can't escape the form of the medium you're working in. But it's not so clearly relying on a lot of filmic techniques. Um, and it's often trying to obscure them, right? Uh, this movie really likes breaking the rule of thirds. Oh, the yeah. Thing, where, where things are placed on screen is, is really, uh, I would say, disobedient to filmic tradition. And what that makes me think of in regards to to pain is that this is like one of the classic philosophical arguments, right? Can you actually know someone other than yourself, you know, and, and obviously it extends to, can you know yourself? But one of the ways that we connect to other people are through these live emotional experiences, right? These things that hit the highs and lows of being human. And like the, this, this movie is a live wire. You know, like you are, you're just sticking your hand in, into, into a, an electrical socket when you watch Begotten and it's, and it's going to jolt you. It's going to make you feel. Yeah. And the, the, the curious thing is like, we, we are not here to give you the definitive correct reading of Begotten, right? This is the, that, that's, that's a kind of interpretive mistake. It's, it's a kind of very modern hermeneutics to believe every text is kind of uh, when you really get down to it, it's singular and we can solve it and we can kind of lock it away. But I think films like Begotten um, and, and this particularly, yes, you will, you can watch it and, you know, uh, you might think it's boring, you might think it's terrifying, but you will have this, you'll have a kind of experience watching it and it will be a phenomenologically distinct one from the experience that someone else who's never seen it for the first time will have as well. Um, and yes, there are commonalities, you know, we can both be in the same position, but I, I really do think that to watch Begotten is in some way to be reminded of the ways in which that no matter how close we might think we can grasp the consciousness of the other, you know, through language or through emotional connection or through, through ritual or through rite, there is always a kind of um, ontological excess that sort of eludes us and the other remains at core kind of fundamentally unknowable um so so if you've never seen it i i think we would both really encourage you to watch it it's 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 at the very least an experience it's it's also one of my favorite herschel gordon lewis movies <laughs> but um there's a transition onto our next point which is cosmic horror and splatter yes uh this is a very bleak film um 
this is in in lots of ways. I think this is a profoundly uh, a profoundly pessimistic film. But pessimism isn't necessarily isn't necessarily bad. I think uh, there there has to be an awareness of just how you know a kind of critical awareness of just how bleak our kind of metaphysical condition. Like the film opens with God literally disemboweling himself with a straight razor. Like I mean. <laughs> It's it's pretty it's pretty on the nose, which is like absent the metaphysical certainties of of God, however that might be construed. What does that leave you with? You know, when that is kind of torn out of you, uh, or torn out of consciousness, what does what does that leave you with? Um, and one of the things I find out kind of digging into this film is that for a very long time it was quite marginal. It wasn't very um, well regarded critically until. Um, until it was discovered by the uh, by the famous writer and, and critic Susan Sontag, who used to do private screenings of Begotten um, in their home. Uh, Could you and, imagine just being in one of those? Yeah, uh, you know, author of Notes on Camp Against Interpretation, writer for the New Yorker, uh, Susan Sontag invites you around to watch to watch Elias Mahijis Begotten, which is that would be a hell of an <laughs> evening. Um, and and Sontag describes it as metaphysical splatter, a metaphysical splatter film. And I was wondering, what do you think about that? What do you think about that as a kind of category? So I love this. This I love this so much. This is like the best possible thing for the weird kind of film criticism I like to do. Uh, uh, because genre boundaries are just a taxa, right? And, and like with the problem with every taxonomy is that they're all sloppy. They're all messy. The borders of them are inconsistent at best. And, and taxonomies are only useful to the extent to which they are useful, that, that we can use them for something coherent. And, and to bring begotten to splatter, I think is so, so perfect, right? Because this connects it then in, into the cinematic uh, filmography of Herschel Gordon Lewis, Right, kind of the the godfather of gore, right? The the man who brought splatter to the masses. And these movies are all about like affectively connecting with you, right? Like they they want to gross you out, they want to disgust you, they they want to wrench your insides. And I think that the the title of metaphysical splatter is just so so good because that that grainy black and white that we see throughout this entire movie obscures the physical gore. Uh, this is not a very gory movie uh, at all, right? Like the gore is so obscured behind layers of grain and high contrast color. You can barely make out what's going on, but that makes it so much more emotionally effective. And I think this brings up a really important point, right? Which is that there is not necessarily a distinction between the physical and the metaphysical, right? You know, what, what yeah. we talk about... When we talk about uh, when we talk about gore, we're talking about like oh, it triggers revulsion, but it raises the the specter of like bodily contingency, the existence of the self, consciousness, and of course, what all of those things might mean on a bigger, more philosophical level. Oh, oh, t- oh t- totally. Uh, this is a very material movie, right? It's very concerned with physicality. Despite, despite naming its characters Mother Earth and God and Son of the Earth and being very abstract, the movie remains deeply grounded. And I think, it, it, I don't know about you, but maybe maybe then it's worth talking about what, what it is that makes it that grounded. And, it's, and uh, there is one kind of 
cinematic and filmic element, which I think probably helps, which is the clear and direct influence of Georges Franju. Yeah, we 100% have to talk about uh, the Zang de Bet. Yes. Uh, for people who don't know, what, what is The Blood of Beasts? Uh, so The Blood of Beasts is a 1949 documentary by uh, Georges Franju. And it is... Documentary is an interesting label for this because that is technically correct, although the film was much more experimental than what we would label a documentary today. Um, it's it's a proto-Herzogian kind of documentary. It's very artistic and very aggressive. It contrasts a uh, Parisian shopping neighborhood, right? Kind of like a upper middle class shopping district with a slaughterhouse in 1949. So, so not yet the kind of clean, I mean, well, contemporary slaughterhouses are not clean by any standard, but they're, they're very mechanized, right? And they're very obscured because of that. But these are slaughterhouses where there, there are no machines yet. This is, this is, these, are, these are men with knives mutilating for work all day long. And the film contrasts those two things. And it is, uh, no pun intended, gutting. Yeah, um, uh, we talked about this a little bit in our, um, uh, our episode on Les Yeux Sans Visage, or Eyes, Eyes Without a Face, uh, Franju's genuinely incredible uh, horror movie from the 60s. But there is there is something very clinical about the juxtaposition that Franju makes between what we what we might call you know quote quote unquote civilized modernity versus the implicit and explicit violence which undergirds that modernity. Absolutely. So how would you how would you then connect that? Because that, that that's what Blood of the Beast is very clearly trying to do, right? It's digging up the kind of violence that is made silent by industrial society. How do we connect that to the kind of metaphysic emotive qualities in Begotten? Well, you know, when we're talking about the metaphysical, when we're talking about, you know, even the kind of theological or the or the quasi-religious in any sense, we're talking about something which is um it in 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 some in some ways you know exsanguinated it's bloodless um you know it's it's spoken about in very abstract idealized terms but if if this film if begotten does anything it's to it's to you know rip out the viscera and show you the blood of any kind of metaphysical speculation So how would we how would we tie this all into cosmicism? Oh my god, cosmism or cosmic horror? I, those are two completely different things. But let's have fun with it. Well, two different things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like I, I suppose on a kind of cosmic scale, the questions this film asks are like, you know, we're not dealing with real people. We're dealing with types. We're dealing with philosophical ideas about the emergence of the the emergence of consciousness into being. And again, that is not an idealized process, right? We're shown, we're sh like even even at its most intellectualized, even at, even at its most kind of airy and highfalutin, any sort of philosophical exploration of of consciousness of, or of subjectivity is by necessity about not just not just the mind or the realm of the 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 idea, but is inevitably about matter about viscera about blood and therefore about the potential of suffering 
right? Oh, oh, totally. And and one of kind of the core tenets of cosmic horror is is unseating anthropocentrism, right? Reminding us that that human consciousness is not the beginning and or center of of reality as a as an object and as a thing. And, and part of that is very mundane, right? Part of that is bodily. It's right. And a lot of cosmic horror, you have uh, body horror woven together because the the very concept of having a living body it's it's this fluid communion with a primordial goo that that structures your very existence but the way we've structured society that is kept out of conscious thought and it's horrifying to encounter that but gotten is is reinserting a lot of this timeless cosmic quality right the uncomfortability of being yeah uh, to be is to suffer right? That's, that's the whole point, right? To be brought into existence is to be brought into, in, into, to literally, to put this in kind of slightly more Heideggerian terms, to be is to be thrown into being and being is being towards death, right? Being is always oriented towards its end. You know, that, it, that, that's why the, the, the kind of famous quote from the lecture of like, what, what's your advice for life? Heidegger said, spend more time in cemeteries, Right, be rem- orientate yourself. Uh, if only he had famously taken his own advice and you know decided not to be a Nazi. Uh, orient- <laughs> orientate yourself towards the world in such a way that you are you are reconciled to that inevitable ending. Um, so it's like this: uh, the existential problem is a lived problem. It's a bodily problem. It is not simply a kind of philosophical problem. And, and I think I think Begotten confronts this specific issue really directly, right? This is one of the things that Mirage uh, has talked about in interviews is that Begotten, like he believes in a continuity of consciousness, right? That, that after death, the, the essential qualities of an individual continue on in some form. Begotten is a way of exploring this, right? There are resurrections in this movie. There are yep. uh, post-mortem impregnations I, I don't know i don't know how to describe <laughs> uh, uh mother earth impregnating herself with god who killed himself yeah this film but like I, it, part of that for me is like the limits of our consciousness and of our character aren't individualized right every every connection that we have with another person is is deeply powerful and deeply meaningful and when the people that are closest to us die that connection lives on through ourselves, right? We are fundamentally reshaped the the closer and more entangled we get with other people, right? The, this thing that is me, this thing that is myself is, is defined by my relationship with so many others and so many other material objects throughout the world. And, and Begotten is very in touch with this. Yeah, I, this is another quote that I use all the time, but it's, is I think no less true for its repetition which is um, Simon Critchley's point that to be is to be indebted to one another, right? We, this, the, the kind of big problem is to think of ourselves as, as solely subjects, solely I, you know, atomized individual, uh, completely uh, disconnected from a, a, our, our own pre-existence. But this is, the, this is the, the, the kind of great thing about thinking about subjectivity and consciousness in collective and social terms, which is that it allows you to recognize that, you know, 
that which is no longer here is in some way still here because it is in some way still formative upon the I that I am, you know? Oh, totally. Uh, so do, do you want to talk about God being dead and or Nietzsche? <laughs> uh, I mean, this is, this is where the kind of metaphysics of this film get super interesting and very, and very complicated. So <laughs> we, we, we have essentially three characters or three, three figures maybe is better than characters. And you have, uh, you have God, nature and man uh humankind and humankind emerges from nature pregnant uh thanks to the death of god um but without consciousness man emerges from nature without consciousness um and i, I was just wondering what do you think about that what do you think about like this this kind of impained juddering groaning figure that um kind of stumbles around the void for much of the film so it's really interesting how we try and divide these characters, right? Because Elias gave them names that help us structure their meaning, right? Mother Nature is a very... Mother Nature, God, and kind of this son of God figure have very clear and powerful kind of archetypical qualities to them. But the text of the movie kind of upsets that balance, right? Because we have these kind of different sets of hooded figures roaming the land, Right. So we have we have striations of humanity within within this balance. And then that calls into question their relationship with Mother Nature and with God. And, and for me, a lot of this balance is about kind of human relationships to the non-human. You know, how how do we see ourselves in an environment? Right. And and the way that um kind of our our, our three protagonists, our three primary figures of this film are are, are treated it reminds me or moves me to think a lot about kind of Fisher's capitalist realism. Uh, uh because you know in this in this film there everything's kind of hemmed in, right? You know, like we were talking about earlier, like time is not linear and begotten. In in fact time barely flows in this movie, right? This movie is weirdly still while still moving. And I think that God kind of dying, Mother Nature just listlessly wandering about, man just kind of writhing in the dirt. That's that's a that, that could be evoked as a pretty stark condemnation of capitalist realism. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think it's consciousness is a struggle, right? You know, it is this. Any like consciousness is, uh, you know, if I can draw off like someone like Ernst Bloch's process ontology, it's this 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 idea of becoming. So the the question is not what is, but what might be, under the conditions that we have now, you know, brought brought to being in this kind of environment. You know, consciousness struggles to emerge, and it doesn't doesn't kind of fully emerge. Right, there is no kind of act of uh, recognition or even self-recognition within begotten um it, in a way it's it, it it understands the the idea of consciousness coming to be as something like phenomenally difficult something that is brought out by blood and death and sacrifice um which which of course brings us to god <laughs> <laughs> so this is more nietzschean right this is more nietzschean than Nietzsche, uh, you know, Nietzsche and the gay science, the 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 famous 
the famous moment where the madman runs in and says, God is dead. God is dead and we have killed him. You know, uh, what must we do to become worthy of the act? Must we not become gods? Uh, and everyone thinks it's a, a fairly straightforward thing, but actually Nietzsche is making a much a much kind of deeper and much more existential point about the the grounding of being in an in an in an age where the kind of metaphysical certainties of theology had kind of collapsed inwards. Um but here, no God God is not dead and we have killed him. God is dead by their own hand. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I want to know what do you what do you what do you think about that? So, you know, like uh, Elias Marriage has talked about this being an incredibly Nietzschean movie, right? Like his his reading of Nietzsche's works uh, really spurred him on to create this film and really solidified his vision for what Begotten was going to become. And I think like that 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 classic line, right? Like you know, you know, God is dead, and we have killed him. And then the, the musing of what do we do to become worthy of this act? How do we live up to the mantle we've claimed? I, uh, so earlier, that slip of the tongue when I invoked Soviet cosmism, I, I think is is appropriate, right? Because part of the kind of imaginative landscape of Soviet cosmism is. Not, not just a, a left version of science fiction and space travel in the future, but also a way to redeem the dead, right? A way to bring liberation to people who on the surface appear completely lost to us. And I think in a weird way, Begotten kind of extends that to the realm of divinity, right? It, it extends that outside of the Anthropos, right? It extends it to Mother Nature. It, it extends it to, to the divine itself. It extends it to kind of, you know, human human consciousness, right? You know, this this meta project that is humanity, right? The hyper object of culture. It's dead, but there is still hope to save it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess that that's the question, right? What new subjects can emerge when when the bodies are buried underground what new thing might come out of it and this is absolutely where i think that connection to the the the, co- the the cosmism of the early 20th century is super interesting this idea that like for all of the metaphysical bleakness of begotten a a communist metaphysics to 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 put it in another way is is about not just the the liberation of all those living but actually uh not just conquering space but conquering time if if God is dead, must we not become gods uh, ourselves? And the kind of the kind of the Russian cosmist Chad meme answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so abrupt transition. Um, how do you how do you feel about uh, Begotten as kind of an absurd work of cinema? Uh, I really like this. We were talking before we came on air about this, um, and you wanted to talk about it in the context of of Camus the existential absurd right so I I talked about Camus in the Precy how can how can we not how can we not talk about Camus when we talk about Begotten I feel like the two slot together so nicely um well, and for me oh, oh go on go on well isn't the isn't the opening of this just the literalization of the myth of Sisyphus right what yes is, yes yes you know what what is the the very opening of that which is like there is only one serious philosophical problem says Camus, the problem is suicide right if mm-hmm. if if life is meaningless if <clears throat> if 
if life, even to the divine, even to, to the kind of metaphysically greater than, is meaningless, you know, why not disembowel oneself to see what might grow from the, from the, the ruins of the blood and the viscera? Yeah, I think this is I think this takes us to a really challenging space, right? Because the whole like the symbolic invocation of Sisyphus, right? Eternally rolling a stone up a hill for 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 no purpose to be trapped in that cycle, right? To to be forever hemmed into a moment like that. I I think is really challenging when most of us live lives where that's our that's our life we we go to some nine to five job that is just rolling a stone up a hill every day and then somehow it gets back down to the bottom by the time we've woken up yeah and this is this is the this is the existential problem right this is the idea of like what it, it if if all the sort of like self-comforting metaphysical myths about existence got stripped away or even or even if you were forced to confront the blood and violence and horror and suffering that ground those metaphysical myths which is what i think begotten actually forces us to do then the, mm -hmm. the, then the question is like well what then what what does that leave you with so do you do you, do you think begotten offers us any or even the beginning of any answer to that question. Um, I think it. I think it leaves you with a walk in the forest, right? Mm -hmm. And I, isn't that such? That's such a powerful moment. That's such a powerful moment because up until that point, we've been wandering around like this bleak, empty, um, you know, painful landscape. There's water and there's rock and there's blood and there's mud and and that's about it um and then right at the end you have a kind of it's basically a pastoral scene right you you're walking in nature walking in the forest um what, what do you think about the ending so I, I love the contrast of landscapes in in begotten right so begotten was filmed at a construction site um in between new york city and new jersey um, so th that that's why it looks like such like a blasted heath for the entire film. Um, and you've got that kind of like dingy cabin that God dies in in the beginning or that, that, that kind of building or whatever. And then, yeah, the rest of the rest of this movie, it's like this, you know, jagged edifice of land, right? It's not even land itself, but it's, it's the suggestion of an inhospitable terrain, but then we have the forest, right? We have the exception to this, right? We have the one piece of landscape in this movie, the one piece of setting that is in and of itself whole, right? That, that is complete again. And I, I think that points us in a direction, right? Like that, that moves us to, not, not, not to sound like a broken record here, but that moves us to challenge anthropocentrism, right? This, this perspective that we are the sum total of existence, you know? They're literally the the son of the earth becomes grist for the mill, right? You know, like this being is ground up and shoved into the earth by these like hooded humanoid figures. And there's there's something really perverse about that, right? There, there's something really perverse about all of these like cycles of incarnation and impregnation and land that aren't present in that forest stroll. Yeah, so there, there, there is hope, right? There is, it isn't very much, right? But there is the possibility of, 
not only a kind of restored social relationship, but a restored relationship between kind of uh, consciousness with nature. Um, you know, w- walking in the forest rather than kind of struggling over rock or being buried in a fire pit to to be burned alive. Um, and so I I don't know. There's not much. There's not much. But is there there is there is something approaching hope right at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting to me that it's like a very material hope. You know, it's not the kind of... Because there's a vacuity to hope, right? There, there's this kind of paralytic quality that, that comes with hope. You know, when, when, you, when you hope when there's nothing left, it, it becomes this kind of uh, uh, self-greasing trap chute that you can slide down. You know, it has no bite to it. But I think in, in Begotten, there's nothing but bite in this movie. There's nothing but abrasive surfaces for you to latch onto. You you have an infinite chain of points onto which you can grip the text. And there's something about that where it's just like, to, to again, to play into these Nietzschean themes, right? All you really need to do is decide that you're going to grapple the text. And in that moment, you know, you, you have this kind of Sisyphean hope. That's that's actually such a really a really cool way of putting it. Um, do you want to, as we start to kind of wind down, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Din of Celestial Birds? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the no 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 conversation on Begotten is truly complete unless you talk about the sequel to Begotten, Din of Celestial Birds. Mm-hmm. So uh, Din of Celestial Birds is uh, Mirage's follow up to begotten it's i think it's like 14 minutes long and and oh boy if you thought begotten was a semi-coherent string of ambient lo-fi chill beats and strange imagery uh wait till you see den of celestial birds okay uh so for people who've not seen it which includes me how how would you <laughs> how would you describe this so den of celestial birds is mirage's meditation on darwinian evolution Right, it is it is evolution evoked through the cinematic form. The same actor uh, who plays, uh, you know, Son of the Earth, Flesh on Bone, uh, reprises a similar role, if not the same role, um, as as a new character. And the kind of texture of the film itself evolves through the course of these fourteen minutes, and the sound kind of evolves alongside of it, and so we get the emergence of consciousness in the shape of a man. And how do you th- how do you think that, that connects to Begotten? How do you think that that sort of brings everything uh, into a whole? So I, I think we have like two competing meditations on the emergence of consciousness, um, because in a lot of ways, Begotten is really anthropocentric with how it sees consciousness emerging into the world. Right there, there are all these human adjacent anthropomorphized actors that are kind of moving the wheel of the movie and then in din and celestial birds it's kind of just noise and i think it's it might be a leap to view the emergence of conscious as a consciousness as a break in noise in din of celestial birds when in reality it's just a different orchestration of that noise mm. well i think uh i think we should probably start thinking about um wrapping up the show on uh, begotten do you have do you have any any final thoughts ash um i highly recommend seeing begotten uh, in any of the many bootleg forms that this movie comes in it is more than worth 
the experience. And I also like there are a lot of really good interviews with Elias Mirage about this movie and how he made it and what he went through and the process and his thinking. And it's a great like begotten and Mirage's relationship to his own text becomes like a great case study in the act of creation in general. Uh, what do you mean? Oh, we have so so the movie in and of itself is is this strange meditation on the pain of creation, and then we have the uh, the pains that he went to to make this movie, right? And making the the film itself suffer, you know, like attacking it with sandpaper and doing all of these things to degrade it, and and all of this comes together to be like this interesting metatextual conversation on on pain and birth and creation. I I I I completely agree. I think it's I think it's a fascinating film and I think maybe the best thing that people can do is stumble across it one day. Right? I in a way I sort of I sort of feel like it's not the kind of film that I would advise people to go and seek out, <laughs> you know? Uh but it's it, it's it's on YouTube, it's on various it's on various uh streaming sites. You can find it. If you've never seen it, uh clear some time uh and uh let go of your expectations of what film should be and allow this to kind of provoke a response from within you awesome well thanks everyone for joining our first ever live show this is really cool thank you to repeater and repeater radio and i guess also thank you uh elias mirage for making begotten <laughs> Yes, thank you so much to everyone listening. Thank you to our kind hosts, Repeater Radio. Please uh, subscribe and donate some money to Repeater Radio. It uh, helps keep all of uh, the shows this weekend on the air and much more besides. Um, thank you so much for listening to the Horror Vanguard. You can find uh, Horror Vanguard on Twitter at Horror Vanguard along with your two co-ghosts. And you can find the show wherever good podcasts reach your ears. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And remember, stay spooky, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.